Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. AlphaList is a closed community with over 300 CTOs that share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insight into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, please visit alphalist.com to find out more about how to apply. This episode is again kindly supported by Fastly, the key challenger in the CDN market. Fastly is pushing ahead the technical boundaries and is, from my perspective, the best solution on the market. Fastly is one of the key drivers of the Edge Cloud movement, meaning that you can execute parts of your workload on the Edge Cloud. In one of the next podcasts, I will also talk to Tyler McMullen, Fastly CTO about WebAssembly and the Edge. Well-known customers of Fastly are Shopify, The New York Times, Reddit, GitHub, and many, many more. If you want to try it all with first-class support, just go to fastly.com slash alphalist. Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I'm your host, Toby. Today, I have a very special guest from Estonia. His name is Sergey, and his company is called Pipedrive. So he's the CTO of Pipedrive. Pipedrive, for all of you who might not know it, is a growing software as a service company, basically a CRM company, I would say, that collected over 90 million in funding. And this episode will be around scaling and growing a SaaS company from the tech perspective. Sergey, maybe you want to introduce yourself a bit more. Sure. Thanks, Tobias. I'm uh, really happy to be on your podcast. Uh, yeah, so uh, you you called it right. Pipedrive is a CRM for salespeople. So it's uh, mostly about uh, helping uh, people who do sales, not necessarily <laughs> their managers or managers of their managers, which uh, typical CRMs are kind of focusing on. And uh, about myself, uh, so I have been in the industry since 1996. This is when I got my first job as a developer. Uh, and uh, interestingly, uh, yeah, I, uh, from the very beginning, I was involved in different uh, uh, software development uh, related to internet. So it, uh, first it was kind of small insurance app uh, on the internet, Then it was Internet Bank in 1998, which was a very progressive, very few banks actually had uh, kind of in, a possibility to do transactions on the Internet. And uh, after spending eight years uh, at the bank, I uh, joined uh, Skype in 2006. Uh, it was already acquired by eBay by that time, so I kind of joined Skype inside eBay. And... Uh, Yeah, I was mostly dealing with uh, architecture of different projects. Uh, my main special specialization was around billing because I I came from bank, so I knew how to count money or how to do payments. Uh, uh, and uh, with uh, Skype, uh, I was for seven years and I went through uh, a couple of acquisitions. So eBay, uh, as you may know, sold... Uh, Uh, Skype to private equity fund, and uh, then while preparing for an IPO, uh, we were acquired by Microsoft, and then I spent two years in 
Microsoft. And uh, I think a couple of like most interesting projects which I was involved in, uh, one was uh, video calling for Facebook. So we were actually powering the very first version of uh, um, Facebook uh, video calling. And uh, right after the acquisition of uh, Microsoft, uh, uh, I was dealing with developing Skype uh, for the Windows 8 uh, operating system, which wasn't ready yet, yet to be released. And uh, it was an interesting experience where you um, have to develop a software for the operating system, which is not ready yet. So it's kind of uh, changing beneath you. You, you Like most of the developers are very used to to the fact that operating system doesn't change, like APIs doesn't change, and, and you ha- don't have to reinstall your laptop uh, every other week because there is a new version of operating system, which is not compatible with the previous one. Uh, and uh, yeah, I spent two years in Microsoft after the acquisition, and then Pipedrive uh, offered me a position of, uh, initially it was VP of engineering, uh, it was a small company, uh, around 20 people altogether, 10 developers. Uh, but they just got uh, the final seed round of 2.5 million. And uh, the plan was for founders to move to California. Uh, but they wanted to have uh, uh, engineering leadership uh, in Estonia, where I am located, and, uh, and also wanted to start growing the engineering team. Uh, so that was my initial task. Looking back at your at your history, then it sounds like a lot of different cultures involved in a very short time, like eBay, Microsoft, private equity. What are your biggest learnings from that time? I think the biggest uh, learning uh, that it's very safe place to work in a big uh, tech company, like the uh, the crisis of two thousand eight, for example, went completely unnoticed uh, for us. Uh, because like, just I mean, we had our projects and we had our salary, and, and uh, maybe the only the only uh, notion was that okay, eBay stock is going down, but like who cares, right? Uh, and and same happened with Microsoft. While being a part of uh, uh, private equity, uh, we were definitely looking at expenses, and uh, after acquisition of uh, Microsoft. Uh, it was clear that uh, uh, we we are in a much more stable environment and we can just focus on uh, on a problem at hand technical problem or like customer problem really was it always cool to work for in such environments as a developer or I, I guess it, it depends on the company, but uh, I would say all of the companies where I worked, uh, they were quite uh, developer-centric. Like uh, most of the te- technology companies are pricing their developers, right? Because this is where all the and the business is coming from. So uh, if developers uh, are not uh, uh, delivering or not celebrated as, as the biggest heroes, then... Uh, Usually there is no business for the company. So in that sense, it was cool. It, the scales are dif- definitely different. Uh, um, also, Microsoft, uh, as, I, as I understand, uh, 
the culture was kind of mm, installed by Steve Ballmer. So uh, uh, the Satya Nadella took over after I actually left. And I know that a lot of things has changed since. So if it was kind of very competitive between different divisions, uh, then with Satya, it's actually more about cooperation and uh, and cooperation kind of valued much more than the delivery of results, which uh, at the end, actually, uh, as we can see, have better results. From my perspective, it's totally amazing how Microsoft changed from being uh, like a totally anti-Linux company and a total anti-open source company towards a very open company that provides the best developer tools and the biggest developer community that is actually out there, right? Yeah, when I when I was part of Microsoft, it it really felt like it was a, a bubble where people inside of Microsoft had no clue what's happening outside of the Microsoft technologies, and and uh, and they were not interested, right? And uh, and uh, now it definitely has changed. At PipeDrive. How is it there, skipping a few years now? Mm. What do you do there and, and, and why do you do it? Uh, well, now I actually uh, have much more responsibilities than just uh, engineering. So engineering itself is uh, around 300 people. So it has always been uh, almost half of the whole organization. So PipeDrive right now is 650 maybe. And then engineering is uh, above 300. Uh, a couple of years ago, we agreed that I will be looking at the uh, possibility to acquire some companies. And, uh, well, first step was really just to define what's, what is our acquisition strategy. What kind of uh, software or features or, or functionality we should be acquiring versus building ourselves uh, and also very important which geographies we are looking at and and uh, what stage of a company we are looking at and so on so uh, i define it and uh, and and actually interestingly that uh, right after just assuming the role and and uh, defining this uh, strategy we started getting leads so with uh, before that uh, there was like zero interest and and after we said okay we are not now going to look at possibilities. Uh, we started uh, getting leads, and uh, it was an interesting experience, which uh, now resulted also in one uh, acquisition, which we may talk later about, uh, Meligen, one uh, Latvian company. But in addition to that, I now actually also responsible for customer support, uh, sales, and customer success. Again, it's not I'm so super powerful. We just had a situation in the leadership where we haven't had anyone to take these uh, areas under our responsibility, and uh, and we just uh, divided them between executive members. Okay, so you all have a lot of roles, or you're just taking the roles that um, nobody else wants to take? It's not that nobody wants to take. We we have been. Uh, uh, failing uh, with hiring senior executives, like we we hired one, and then uh, she left, and then we hired another, and he left, and 
And then we decided, okay, let's not rush into hiring another one. Let's just uh, uh, like divide uh, certain areas between exec uh, team members and uh, and take it kind of slow and steady. So now we actually have a new CEO. It was uh, announced just recently. Uh, so Timo Rain, who was the founder, one of the founders of PipeDrive, after 10 years uh, at the company, he decided to give it over to a new person and uh, he himself is remaining as a chairman of a board. I guess you have a vast experience in, in building SaaS companies then also with like all the different roles and customer success and so on that you, that you, that you had or have. Um, let's imagine I'm a CTO or a product person that wants to build a successful SaaS company. Uh, what would be your top advice what would be your your do's and don'ts um like when i'm just getting started yeah uh, if we are looking from the technology perspective uh, i think it's important to minimize amount of time you're kind of spending on building non-essential features or functions because uh, There are so many kind of services which are available to you and you don't either for free or for a small amount of money if you're not kind of uh, at a huge scale and uh, instead of spending engineering time and resources uh, building I don't know like user management or feature flag management or or uh, database uh, scaling systems and so on uh, like you should really focus only on the customer needs. Uh, solving them and validating if if uh, your solutions are actually kind of matching what customer needs. Usually, startups are not growing that crazy fast that you won't be able. Like if you're wildly successful, like uh, in Skype we used to say that uh, scaling problems are good problems to have. Like the the much worse problem is not to have anyone <laughs> who would like to use your service, right? So I think the most uh, of the focus should be uh, put on validating the customer problem and and the solution as well. How would you measure that? So how do you measure the success of a feature at PipeDrive? Well, uh, I feature adoption, obviously. So uh, the, the customer feedback uh, and is it actually used or not? And uh, because PipeDrive is already became such a complicated software like many of the features like many of our customers don't even know about their existence so then it comes to just uh, how well you are able to educate uh, uh, how well you uh, are able to onboard customers uh, uh, but also how how well you are able to kind of simplify the feature for the user so they don't have to read manuals and, and spend a, a lot of amount of time to understand how to use this feature. Let's uh, make a quick test. So um, I actually know your software I, mm. I, I, and it, like my company uses it. I, for a hobby project, uh, decided a while ago to switch to Airtable, which is, I guess, not really a competition because it's more like a database because I was missing a feature and maybe it exists. So let's see if okay. you're communicating it what, right. What exactly? Is it possible to to easily build a custom scoring on behalf of certain customer criteria? Highly requested feature. Uh, one of several which uh, are our customers I, uh, requesting. And I, I do understand. Let's say you want to calculate commissions, right? And commission is, I don't know, uh, 10% of, of the deal value, right? So it, like it would be so so nice to have a field which just say commission and commission uh, value is 
deal value multiplied by 10%, right? So, but, and we know about this problem. Again, it's just so many things uh, <laughs> to do in our software that uh, this one specifically is not. Uh, is not uh, available uh, and uh, there are workarounds right you you can actually because there is an api you can uh, kind of trigger an event saying that okay this field has been updated and and now do the calculation on a side uh, of a pipe drive and then update this uh, other uh, field which you would like to to contain this calculator, I was, I was I was too too lazy and too impatient back then because I just wanted to have something simple. Uh, I think like for for my company I would do it. But um, any any other do's and don'ts you have? I think uh, very very important to talk to the customers as as much as possible. Maybe I, I me myself is is not very good at, but I mean we as a company as PipeDrive. Uh, We have a separate research team who is dealing only with that, like talking to customers and trying to validate uh, uh, our hypothesis: what are the customer problems, <laughs> and what, what, what how to, how to solve them. So it, there, are, there are two phases, really. Just first, validate that yes, there is a problem, and and what the problem exactly is, and and then. Uh, Uh, once we have some ideas how to solve this problem and also validate that uh, this uh, solution is understandable, easy to understand, and and, uh, and it actually covers uh, most of the problems. Uh, I, again, like when uh, hiring is probably one of the most important things, Second to the kind of actually solving the actual problem, uh, hire like depending on what kind of people you will hire, uh, your basically success will be determined. And uh, initially, uh, you need to hire generalists, I guess people who are ready to take any kind of job and and uh, ready to quickly learn and. Uh, Uh, and uh, as you are growing, like it's not, in, it's inevitable, you're going to to have more specialized roles, and then you really uh, need people who are kind of happy to to go kind of narrow and deep in specific topic instead of being just uh, wide in their knowledge. Coming back to your your validation approach, so do you do any um, uh, let's say prototypes on features, or how do you? Do you do that? Do you invite customers, trusted customers, to features to test them? Do you do prototyping at all? How do you do that? Yeah, we have. So uh, initial uh, prototyping is done just by the product manager and the designer. So they uh, and maybe some of the engineering uh, leaders. So they sit together and uh, and brainstorm what kind of uh, solutions uh, would make sense, and, and then they validate the prototype. But then uh, we, uh, from the very beginning, we had a very extensive kind of feature flagging system, which uh, allows us uh, both enable specific uh, features uh, to specific customers, uh, which uh, helps you with uh, gradual rollout of features, uh, which also helps with uh, continuous uh, deployment and integration of, of the software. Like you, while you're developing, like the system the feature is not ready, you put it under feature flag and you continuously deploy it into production. So basically, the 
software in the production uh, have all the features which are being currently developed, but they're just not visible to all the users. They're visible to kind of developers and uh, product managers. Your, your example that you would rather license a feature flagging system instead of building it yourself, that is, uh, I guess, something you did then as well? or uh, No, I, uh, I think when Pipedrive started, uh, there were no available uh, services like that. But uh, nowadays there are, and, and I, instead of building this uh, system, uh, I would encourage people just to, to license a ready one. Also, sometimes buy instead of make or rent instead of make is a recommendation you would you would give people. I would say initially, uh, yes. At some at some point, you see that uh, you at your scale, it does make sense to kind of build uh, build it uh, internally, or if you have uh, very specific uh, requirements, which. Uh, which uh, existing software doesn't cover, then it's also uh, kind of a reason to, to build. At PipeDrive, we actually do build a lot of uh, also infrastructure components ourselves. Uh, and again, like for various reasons, but mostly it's just because there is no exact match and fit to what, what we need. And uh, if we would give it up, then we would need to rewrite a lot of our components. So we we choose to to write some of the infrastructure components ourselves. If if you look at it today, what would you really say is your then? If you look at your your product, what is your DNA? Uh, is there a secret sauce you would focus on if you could like just focus today? I, I think the software DNA was really to make it. Uh, simple to use for salespeople so that they do understand like so that the software matches their kind of thinking process uh, a lot of that to do with uh, two of our founders who were kind of in in the sales uh, before pipe drive they were in sales for 15 years we were consulting uh, businesses how to do sales how to organize sales processes uh, And uh, software was built based on their experience. And I think uh, they were just able to kind of simplify and generalize uh, the concepts of uh, successful selling, uh, sell processes. Uh, and this is uh, why PipeDrive was such, such a successful business. I mean, we can build any kind of software, but if you don't understand the kind of user uh, mentality, then you won't be successful. I, I also remember when it was introduced at, at OMR, our company, it was something very new, unique and new to have like a very simple interface for sales, right? Uh, back then, I think like the recommendation would be rather to use Salesforce, but that was simply not practical for smaller companies. I mean, today, I think it changed a bit. Like there's like a lot of competition in the field you entered, but I think you were one of the first companies that actually entered that field, right? Uh, yes, that's right. And uh, I think uh, from a business perspective, uh, what uh, Pipedrive is also unique about is very, very uh, few companies were able to stay in this small company segment for, for such a long time. Like most of the companies, they start in the SMB segment, but then they quickly realize that uh, enterprises actually bring much more money and they try to kind of go up market. Uh, but uh, 
that usually fires back because in the up market uh, there are many more established companies kind of playing the, the the game at much higher level and then for young companies it's quite hard and, and staying in in SMB is also hard because the ARPU is not very high but you need to like there are a lot of like if if you don't if you keep your prices at a reasonable level and then you're successful, then your systems actually have to kind of scale with with the business, uh, and and uh, and then it uh, becomes a question: Are you able to scale both uh, uh, engineering organization and and the architecture and, and and so on? I guess also, are you able to keep up with a, a very demanding enterprise market then i guess like gdpr data certification pen testing at scale uh, that's something that big accounts might might be demanding for right it's it's demanding it's interestingly that uh, that the law like gdpr right it's like for everyone it doesn't actually even matter if you're serving enterprises or small businesses or just private uh, uh, people like you have to comply with with the law and uh, uh, for us it was kind of a bit of a luck when uh, even before the GDPR was kind of announced uh, we were in the process of uh, scaling the system I mean every system have uh, certain bottlenecks right so like your number of users grow and then some of the components start failing and then you kind of spend some effort on scaling this component and then you run into some other component not scaling well and at some point uh, I had an idea that uh, there is no point in uh, chasing this uh, bottlenecks spree but uh, rather create an architecture where we can uh, use uh, uh, so basically multiply the number of systems and then just uh, just uh, uh, spread the users across this uh, multiple instances of pipe drive uh, uh, this way you can find a balance like let's say with 20,000 customers your system works well with 30 it doesn't then you just uh, split it in, in two create two instances and then just distribute the users between between them we called it uh, multi data center architecture so the idea was that instead of just having just one data center we have many uh, in uh, multiple geographic locations and and then we just distribute users based on their geography and then it took us, uh, I think, two, maybe two and a half years to actually go from the idea to the kind of final uh, moment where we started letting customers into the second data center, which apparently was in Germany, in Frankfurt. And uh, and by that, we automatically complied with with, uh, with many of the GDPR requirements, uh, uh, but but it's definitely not enough. Like there are there are uh, many more, and and we have a separate team which is dealing with compliance with the data privacy. It's not very very huge team, but uh, yeah, they are covering all the security and privacy aspects. Do you then do stuff like penetration testing at large, or is that is that team also responsible for that? Uh, well, that team is responsible that all necessary. <laughs> 
things are done uh, in terms of compliance uh, and, and security. So there are many things you, you can do, right? Uh, uh, so to, to understand uh, what you need to do, we, we choose to look at certifications. Let's say there is a SOC 2 and ISO certifications, and, uh, and you can read out what needs to be done, or what kind of processes you need to have, what kind of uh, governance uh, around different topics. So we choose it as a project plan. So we we need to do uh, this, 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 and that. Uh, the certification just measures how well you're doing it. For cybersecurity, for example, we definitely use uh, different defense and alerting and and like monitoring systems inside. But we also uh, spend a lot of uh, effort on education of developers. And with education, you first need to kind of assess the knowledge of a group. And if, if you have a large group, and it's not only developers, I mean, the whole, like the employees, basically, the people is the vector which is kind of used and abused most because it's very easy to kind of protect the system, but it's very hard to protect uh, insiders uh, if insiders themselves don't understand what, what might, might happen. So we, there are like three type of uh, people. The ones who are not interested and maybe not uh, very knowledgeable. So for them, you just need to keep a bar, right? You just need to understand who they are and then try to keep uh, their bar at minimum so that they are protected. Then there is a, uh, a group of people who are knowledgeable uh, but not very kind of interested, not, not going very deep. And the, these are so-called blue team uh, people. So they, they are good at defense, but they are maybe not very good at finding new vectors, right? And then uh, there are people uh, who are interested and also interested in going very deep in the topic. And the, these are the red team. So uh, these people, you really kind of double down on educating them, and then you let them break your system, and they might be able to do it much better than the external parties because they, they understand also internals of the system. And uh, we also use uh, HackerOne platform. We have kind of trusted set of uh, external uh, people who are really good. They, they, they know our application. They understand our business logic. And uh, whenever we release kind of new features, we let them first know and, uh, and uh, we pay paying bounties for them. So it's working for us really well. Thanks a lot to our sponsor, the About You Cloud. The About You Cloud offers a full-stack e-commerce solution as a service that runs on exactly the same infrastructure as About You does. It is mobile-first, can act as headless system, event-driven, can be fully localized and is super integratable into existing solutions. Besides that, it is designed and developed by a really smart guy, the CTO and friend of mine, Sebastian Betz, who also did the first Alphalist podcast with me. About You has set up a special task force for retailers and brands that want to be quick in the COVID situation. About You has set up a special task force for retailers and brands that want to be quick in the COVID situation. This task force will help you with the launch of your shop, 
as well as with fulfillment, marketing, support and internationalization. Simply write to hello at aboutyou.com to be supported by this task force. If I look at your software, so I actually yesterday did it. I uh, looked at the, at the network calls that are going out to your server. I see like a few different approaches, which uh, smells a bit like you have some legacy. I guess that's also typical mm -hmm. if you're in business with such a successful business. So how much do you have to fight with, with legacy? Mm. Well, we, we don't fight with, we embrace it. I mean, uh, <laughs> uh, the project which I mentioned, uh, this multi-DC project, uh, actually also changed a lot uh, in terms of like the application architecture itself. Uh, like one one key component for, to this comp uh, architecture is the so-called uh, we can call it API gateway or so it's uh, uh, it's the layer which is doing a user uh, authentication and then it's routing requests uh, between different services. Uh, so like a lot of requests are going to the legacy system. But then, uh, like, a lot of other requests are going to microservices, right? And uh, whenever you kind of need to change or, or like, I mean, with creating a new features, it's very easy. You just create a, a microservices and, and they are served side by side with the legacy system. And this routing system is allowing you to kind of proxy request the correct service. What we are doing also is just uh, uh, whenever we need to change the feature, like to add more functionality, we evaluate if it's worth actually extracting this feature from the legacy system and creating a microservice instead. There are, there are What we also found out that uh, there is a core kind of core object model which is not possible really to extract uh, uh, like objects uh, one by one and there are uh, multiple reasons one reason is because the model itself is quite tight tightly coupled like there is a deal there is a contact there is a activity associated with one or the other there are nodes but then there are also vertical aspects of the application like permissions filters and as long as these features are inside the legacy application it's very hard to extract anything else uh, so in that sense uh, like you you first have to uh, extract the vertical vertical parts uh, like sorry not vertical horizontal parts horizontal features Uh, and then you can start extracting the, the specific domain uh, objects out of the legacy system. Yeah, so far we, we haven't done that. It's, it's a lot of work. And, and uh, my approach is like every, every project, engineer project, should also bring some customer value. If there is no customer value, then we don't do it. Well, I mean, if you have the comfort that you can just deploy your application to, uh, I don't know, a thousand different instances uh, and uh, like not necessarily even have data shared in all moments, then um, I think it's kind of a, a good thing, right? You don't need to have like that overarching bridge. Uh, yes. So uh, again, like legacy systems, uh, they they grow out of like history, right? 
and again that's maybe one one other advice if you start uh, uh, building uh, uh, like software from the beginning don't try to build it scalable from the day one because it's so much harder you will be spending so much more time on this architecture and setup instead of just building the software so i was i i would argue that starting with monolith is completely perfect and the only reason to start uh, splitting it out into smaller independent uh, services is not actually the scaling of the system it's actually the scaling of a team because if uh, if you have like 10 20 50 developers uh, it, for them it's really hard to work on one component versus each of them having uh, separate components and also one of the I call it basic right of a developer is to be able to deploy your own code into production and uh, uh, right now uh, because uh, we have so many different uh, so we have like small microservices right and uh, their deployment is fairly simple but if you have a change in the big monolith and 10 other guys having a change in, in big monolith, then there is a queue of deployments and you have to wait until all the other guys deploy their changes. So it's kind of artificially creating a bottleneck for changes inside monolith. And you also have to be very careful with deployments, right? Uh, as uh, things might break. Well, things might break uh, everywhere, but in that sense, yes, the bigger the component, the more central it is to the system, uh, the more kind of the bigger impact will be on the customers. Do you do any automated testing then? Um, I guess, yes. Yes, yes. <laughs> where and does it start yeah, and where does it end? Yes. Uh, uh, and uh, the level of automated testing for different components is different. We uh, were setting a bar to ourselves that for new, smaller components, uh, like the at least eighty percent of the uh, code coverage happening, and we we have components with hundred percent code coverage on automated testing. But, uh, yeah, unfortunately, that's not uh, true for this one big legacy component, which has been started uh, without uh, automated tests. Uh, we added API tests, like integration tests, on top uh, later on, but it's not the same as having like 100% unit test coverage. As far as I remember, I saw also GraphQL in your in your stack, correct? Uh, GraphQL again, it's it's uh, it's uh, one of the recent additions, and uh, not uh, uh, not all of the services have GraphQL. We we create again, we created uh, an infrastructure. Uh, on top of existing API, which kind of, uh, we call it composite API, which, uh, uh, and this infrastructure component is just uh, serving the same uh, REST API uh, as GraphQL components. Uh, so you're building some sort of a, the proxy layer yeah. that um, is serving GraphQL and that, um, in the like, in the background serves a lot of other APIs? Uh, yes. So if instead of like uh, uh, having uh, 10 different requests, so the REST API, just do one request to GraphQL, and then on the back end, it combines uh, 
all these different requests into one response. Whenever you're talking about the big monolith, is there a chance for you to also rewrite that in total or does that make no sense? Uh, I don't think we will rewrite it in total. We had plans to on extracting different uh, features, like as I mentioned, filters, like we had a separate uh, project for extracting filters uh, from the monolith and uh, we had a separate uh, project for extracting per user permissions and again not not for the sake of extracting it from the monolith but for the sake of being able to apply this on other uh, microservices because right now they have to kind of handle this uh, themselves uh, but wouldn't it be nice to have one common a component which is handling uh, all the permissions uh, uh, for all microservices. Uh, I think one one uh, interesting uh, architectural challenge, uh, like difference, uh, uh, we have. Uh, I, I, I haven't seen many of the companies which are doing that. Is how we scale our database system. We use uh, MySQL for uh, like the main uh, object model. Uh, and uh, and every customer is getting uh, their own separate database. So when you do sign up, we create a new database, and uh, and you are using that, and uh, that uh, allowed us to uh, any kind of kind of queries uh, because these databases are very small. In, customers are small, and and uh, and we virtually at no indexes on tables because there are very few. <laughs> Uh, data records uh, and then you can basically join and combine tables as as you would as you want to obviously for larger companies uh, this doesn't scale really well so we we are gradually kind of adding indexes and trying to optimize and also looking for opportunities how we can scale horizontally one my MySQL database. Like there are certain technologies, but we just haven't picked one. I think when when I remember correctly, you also offer a feature where you index all the emails of a salesperson, right? Um, I can imagine that this also um, somehow interferes with a growing MySQL database, or is it stored somewhere else? Uh, so email me metadata is stored in CoachDB. So we were uh, using CoachDB extensively. And uh, for indexing, like full text search, uh, we use index. Uh, sorry, Elastic Elasticsearch. What's interesting uh, is also that we use Elasticsearch also for our uh, uh, reporting uh, services. Uh, Elastic's Elastic aggregation fo uh, functions were proved to be the fastest out of different technologies we were. Kind of exploring the elk stack, um, like Elasticsearch, Logstash, Kibana is kind of an amazing one, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's fast. Um, do you also use Kibana and the other tools there? Uh, we don't use Kibana. So for logging, we use Graylog. Uh, we use so Elastic is used only for search feature and also the insights or reports. Uh, we use uh, for dashboarding. We use uh, I don't remember. Uh, technology sorry the name there are so many names <laughs> yeah and a lot of technology in your company i guess yeah uh, yeah and then uh, a lot of developers and then a lot of need, different needs so uh, another interesting technology we use uh, is uh, 
called Dibisium. I don't know if you have heard about it. We had a problem. So whenever you uh, change a, a data inside your database, you want, I mean, you want to have the same change in different uh, multiple databases. Like the one is, so let's say you, you change the name of a contact and you want it to go into a main database, but you also want to go into Elastic so that you can later on find uh, this person by the new name instead of the old one, right? And then uh, Insights also have a separate database. And then we have this API uh, events uh, or like websoc- uh, webhook events where on every data object change our customers can can get uh, receive notifications uh, so we were sending those events from the application uh, into the rabbit rabbit mq uh, but the problem uh, as you can imagine if if this changed later on like because there is no two-phase commit if for some reason, one of the transactions failed, and there is a lot of inconsistencies over time, right? And we wanted to keep data consistent, uh, so we found uh, this technology called Debezium, which is uh, taking MySQL bin logs and uh, sending them uh, into Kafka queues. So basically, whoever is interested in the changes uh, in the data flow they can uh, start listening to this uh, Kafka queue events and then uh, do their own appropriate changes. Interesting. And that only applies to changes that really happened because yeah, it's in the business, exactly. right? And, and then because it's Kafka and you can keep a history of a change, you can also replay some of the changes uh, if you like, I know, processed them incorrectly or something. Yeah, sounds like a very special a special use case and, and a bit of a niche use case but um, yeah very interesting uh, that you that you have a technology for it um, if you look uh, back at your company um, and also your culture how do you scale in terms of teams processes and culture is there a special ingredient that you discovered throughout the years yeah actually we we did so we we were when we were growing we were hiring new people Uh, one of our ph- philosophies was that uh, we want each team to be able to to run uh, independently of each other. Again, this is coming maybe from uh, my previous experiences where if you have too many dependencies between different projects, between different teams, then you, you spend so much uh, effort on coordinating and planning and uh, and I just wanted to avoid all of this waste of sitting in meetings and trying to to wrap your head around uh, when somebody is going to be ready and uh, what will uh, who can proceed and and what happens if somebody is late and and then everyone uh, is kind of blaming this uh, failing party and so on. so I, w- I wanted to avoid that and I wanted every team to run independently and uh, and that means uh, that your Both organizational structure and your architecture have to support this type of uh, kind of process, and uh, and it was fairly successful. So we grew up to, I think, uh, around 20 uh, small teams. So each team was around uh, seven, eight developers, and uh, uh, there were like there were 
good things about this, uh, but there were also negative things. One uh, one negative thing was about uh, uh, legacy and history of a team. Like if you start a new team, the very first uh, project, uh, they deliver really fast because they don't have anything to maintain. They don't have legacy. And the second one, uh, because we also have a philosophy that you build it, you run it. So kind of DevOps uh, mentality. Uh, the second project usually takes longer time because they still have to maintain the first one and uh, and the third one takes even longer. And then at some point you realize that this team is not able to take any more. And uh, then you have to create a second, another team, right? <clears throat> which which is not a problem uh, per se, but uh, for developers who have been with a team like for two, three years and uh, maybe want to do something new, it wasn't very easy to kind of move across the teams because there is always a negotiation. They are a critical part in their existing team and so on. So uh, what we uh, created is uh, is an interesting uh, system where we, we call it uh, missions and tribes. So the tribe is a bit uh, bigger team, let's say 20, 25 engineers and uh, this team still have own some of the system components. So basically, we we joined three or four teams into one bigger team, and they all inherited the components which they are responsible for. Uh, but uh, you get uh, to certain efficiency. You don't need all these 20 people uh, looking after existing components. So you can say that we need only four or five or six developers to look after existing components. And uh, the rest uh, can focus on building something new. And uh, and building something new, again, means that uh, if you're committing to building a new uh, feature, a new component, you're kind of focusing on it, only on it. So you're, uh, there is an agreement that if you're on, we call it a mission. So essentially it's a project, but uh, but mission is a much better name. So there is a mission and uh, people who are on a mission, they're focusing only on a mission and delivering a mission. And nobody is allowed to bother them with uh, uh, existing component questions or, or, or problems and so on. And those people who are not on a mission, they are working on existing components like if there is a bug, they are fixing a bug. If there is uh, some uh, request uh, from, I don't know, general engineering to upgrade some versions, they they deal with that. So there is a kind, and and then people can rotate. Like while the mission uh, finishes, they land their new components, they exchange the knowledge, and then those people who were in maintenance mode, they can go on the next mission. And those who were on a mission, they can uh, stay on, a, we call it launch pad. They can st- stay on launch pad and, and uh, deal with maintenance. Okay. And everyone wants to be on a mission always, right? Uh, not, not always. And, and f- people do, do feel uh, responsibility. But, and it, it also depends on the person and depends on his, uh, his kind of state, personal state. Because mission, uh, and they're exhausting in, in different ways. On a mission, you have a really clear focus. 
right? And uh, while you're trying to hit uh, uh, the dates and then deliver results, you are still uh, you don't have multitasking. And on the launchpad, there are a lot of small uh, critical things to be done, and, and there is always constant switching. So people do say that launchpad is actually much more exhausting for them than working on a mission. Sounds like a like a good like a good concept. And um, as far as I understood, autonomy is a very big big piece then in your in your idea of how developers are ide are working ideally. Um, how much? Autonomy in terms of selecting languages and baseline technology uh, for each of the microservices. Mm. Um, how much aut autonomy can one person have, or should one person have? So, uh, people like there is a supporting infrastructure. Like uh, the way, uh, like all the deployments are automated, and uh, and uh, like testing is automated, building Docker images is automated, and for Each technology, it's a bit different, right? And uh, uh, if you want, uh, if you pick the technology which is already supported, then for you it's like easy, like uh, easy, like ready, steady, go. You you just start writing, and there are templates uh, for services and so on. If you want to pick a new technology, then then. Like you have to create all of it before you deploy your first line of code. So there is a lot of... But you're, you're able to do it still? or I mean, if there is a good reason, if there is a good reason, then yes, we, we will support this decision. But, uh, but if it's just because I like this technology more, it's like, but we are not ready to spend so much time on, on creating the infrastructure for what we like, right? Maybe that um, goes into the same bucket. Um, you mentioned at the beginning that you're also responsible for mergers and acquisitions. Um, and uh, you actually acquired an Estonian company called Mailigen. Uh, I think it's an email automation yeah. platform, yeah. right? How do you manage the technical and cultural side of the integration? Are they like fully working at your physical location? or? So the company is actually Latvian. So they are very close to Estonia, but, but they're still like 300 kilometers from Tallinn. And the acquisition itself happened right before the COVID crisis. Uh, we had a plan to bring all Meligen employees to Tallinn office for the onboarding. But because they're weak, they, they, like they had to come to the office, borders closed. Like we never were able to bring them to Tallinn. For the proper onboarding, but uh, nevertheless, we started the integration projects, and then we did that remote. Uh, we asked uh, many of PipeDrive engineers to work on this integration project. So, uh, Meligen had, I think, five developers, and uh, around 15 PipeDrive employees are actually now also working both on Meligen application and all the, on the integration project and, and so on. So there is quite a uh, quite significant uh, amount of people helping Meligen uh, to integrate with us. Integration tech-wise then means that it's fully melted into your product or? So uh, initially it will be just a synchronization of data between two applications and also some rebranding, redesigning of the Meligen uh, software. But going forward, yes, we are planning to 
kind of make MailAgent part of our user interface. Like there are steps there. Like first we need to make uh, user management and billing uh, uh, the same platform, but then also a user interface will, will mi migrate. We also moving uh, uh, PipeDrive uh, navigation uh, from horizontal to vertical, and this is specifically to fit in MailAgent, but also any other new kind of major blocks, because there's just not enough space on, on top of navigation bar right now. Like maybe uh, like a, a few closing questions as we already um, uh, spent a lot of time, which I really like and really enjoyed. Um, with your technical superpowers, if you would not crack the sales thing now, what big problem of the world you would 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 like to solve right now? Uh, it's kind of disappointing for me personally, and maybe now for you, <laughs> is that I don't really know. Uh, I, I'm I'm the kind of person which have to close the door before the next door kind of opens, and I don't know which the next door uh, will be or should be. So I'm kind of don't think about it until the previous door has been closed. Uh, so you're a focus, uh, yes, loving person. And do you have like a tool or book you currently annoy anyone with because you recommend it all of the time? Oh, there are many books which I, I uh, do recommend. Uh, for example, uh, one of the books uh, is called Extreme Ownership, written by two U.S. Uh, Navy SEALs. And it's just talking about uh, taking ownership of, of a situation or a problem or or whatever, doesn't matter on which position you are. Basically, they're saying that everyone is responsible for what's happening around them, right? And it's, uh, it's again, there are many books which are talking about on this, uh, about the same topic where uh, you should go, uh, you shouldn't go get into this kind of um, victim Uh, mentality where or this happened to me it's like this happened for a reason right or like uh, uh, this other guy failed right no it's actually you failed uh, noticing that this guy is failing uh, so mm. uh, I, I really like this mentality of taking ownership of everything that's happening and uh, as a closing question is like the question for you and also a present so imagine this year is a time machine mm. and It can bring us back in the late 90s uh, when you were like just finished with studying and starting your first job. And you have the chance now to whisper something into young Sergei's ears mm. back then. What would it be? I, I, I saw this question uh, <laughs> in your notes and then I was thinking, what would it be? Maybe uh, I, I would uh, advise myself to try to be more self-aware because I, I started to, to deal with this topic of trying to understand uh, myself and, 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 uh, and be conscious about what's happening uh, around 30s. So, uh, and I think this is what actually helps you to develop as a, as a person and also as a professional and, and, and be able to help other people much more. So the earlier you start with kind of developing your self-awareness, the better. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Sergey, for your time. Uh, hope to talk to you soon. Thank you, Tobias. Thank you. 
Thanks again to our sponsor, The About You Cloud. If you want to get supported by their task force, just write to hello at aboutyou.com. And thanks as well to Fastly, our other sponsor. If you want to get supported by them implementing the world's best CDN, just go to fastly.com slash alphalist. <laughs>